Good morning, everybody, or good afternoon, everybody. Whenever it is that you get your podcast fix, my name is Derek Smith, and this is the Truth or Derek Show, or the Truth or Derek Podcast. Call it whatever you want. And oh boy, we have a jam-packed show for you to do today. Lots of fun, as always. And today we are talking with Lieutenant Colonel Buzz Patterson. Uh, written a bunch of New York Times best-selling books. He was in the Air Force. He was a commercial pilot. He worked in the White House uh, with Bill Clinton. A uh, bunch of stuff. So definitely, I cannot wait to dive into that. Um, we got a bunch of other stuff to get to, but you know, normally now is when we do our little uh, little advertising read. But uh, I thought I'd try something a little bit new. <laughs> uh, being involved in the world of podcasting, as I am, I obviously get a lot of ads for. Uh, different things. So something came across my desk about a week ago. It was called AI Podcasting. Now, obviously, I enjoy my time here. I love uh, talking with you guys and hearing all your feedback and everything. But somebody came up with the idea of AI podcasting for people that are too busy uh, maybe to be able to record shows. So what you do is you enter all the information throughout the day or whatever that you want to talk about, and then a robot reads it for you. So uh, let's give that a try, and uh, they say it's just as good as the real thing, so let's give that a try and see if it's just as good. Good morning everybody, or good afternoon everybody, my name is Derek Smith and this is the Truth or Derek show, and oh boy do we have a show for you today, fun by the barrel full. But first a message from Podstars. Get ready to take your podcasting career to the next level with... Podstars is a talented and passionate community that will give you the opportunity to interview top professionals from a variety of industries. So far, so good. Where they will share their insights and experiences with your audience. Plus, everyone will have access to our exclusive celebrity catalog featuring some of the best in the business, both new and established. It is also free to join. As a member of Podstars you can choose from our catalog of celebrities to interview on your podcast. If interested for an additional monthly fee of only 8.99 month you can upgrade to the community plan. A completely different and exciting catalog full of some of the best experts and professionals in their fields today, yeah. as well as access to everyone in the whole Podstars universe. It is a great way to invest in your podcast, as you will save time and money by being able to book guests from one platform with an expansive catalog that is constantly being added to. All the time. So why wait? Join, now and start exploring all that we have to offer. You will not want to miss out on this amazing opportunity to elevate your podcasting career and be a part of our exciting community. <laughs> yeah, I can't hear the difference at all. Even if I tried to do that, it'd be today. We are talking to Buzz Patterson, Lieutenant Colonel Buzz Patterson from the Air Force. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I don't know if AI podcasting has come uh, come as far as their uh, their advertising uh, says so, but I don't know. Who knows? But I think for the meantime, I'll just uh, I'll stick with uh, re- I'll stick with doing the show myself. Lots of stuff to go over. There was actually a few I wanted to give. Uh, I wanted to give a shout out to Liz Rand, uh, a, a Truth or Derek show fan from uh, up in our nation's capital. I, I was actually, I, it was interesting. The, the last episode I did, uh, I didn't have a guest. So, uh, you know, it was just me rattling on here and there. And I, I didn't know how well that was going to go over because obviously before it was uh, 
the four shows previous had guests, but, uh, you know, I'm always ready for negative feedback or positive or constructive criticism. And all the feedback I got was good. Everybody said, but uh, this one particular from uh, from a fan, so I'd like to give a couple of shout-outs I got to do. Definitely one to Liz Rand, who wrote, I listened to your show the other day, and hey, you're a natural-born storyteller. You don't necessarily need a guest to hold the listener's attention. Also, I'm a big fan of Walmart. Huge savings. I do all my shopping there. I'm looking forward to the next installment. So, uh, yeah, little things like that. It does, uh, again, any feedback. Any questions, uh, anything at all, you guys always shoot them over. I do have a bunch of stuff to go through today, but I will definitely throw in some of those solo episodes here and there just so I can cover everything that we wanted to talk about. The show was actually out of sequence because I know at the end of the last one, I told you we were going to talk with uh, Tara Spencer Narn, uh, the actress from Corner Gas and like a hundred other things. But I had recorded the episode and then right, uh, right before we were supposed to talk, she actually got a, she got a movie role, so... You know, obviously, congrats to her. I don't want to get in the way of that. I'm sure uh, Hollywood acting comes a little bit before uh, appearing on the Truth or Derek show. So uh, congrats to her. But I, I had a whole bunch of uh, your questions and comments and a bunch of food and top five stuff wrapped up in that episode. So hopefully I'll be able to talk to her. And we got we got our, our guest line up for the next few shows, too. But um I I will definitely uh, I will definitely get that through. So uh, one of the other shout outs, something that really interesting that came across last week, we have to give a shout out to the great state of Oklahoma. <laughs> now, why Oklahoma? You say? Yes, Oklahoma. I say uh, from all the way from Oklahoma City <laughs> and the great uh, Oklahoma City Thunder <laughs> down to the beautiful city of Tulsa. <laughs> And that was the only ones I had off the top of my head, because to be completely honest with you, uh, I went down the Oklahoma rabbit hole. Uh, Outside of looking for major cities, I came across Oklahoma. They are known for American football, oil production, agriculture, wheat, cattle, and oil seeds, and also tornadoes. Three uh, interesting facts. I'll get to my point in a second about Oklahoma. Uh, The bread twist tie was invented in Oklahoma. The shopping cart, also invented in Oklahoma, 1936. Uh, And I I don't know if we can thank them for this, but uh, the nation's first parking parking meter was installed in Oklahoma City, again, home of the thunder, in 1935. And lastly, well, second lastly, uh, the first Girl Guide Scout cookie was sold in Muskogee, Oklahoma, in 1917. Now, what does this have to do with the Truth or Derek show? is my uh, podcast distribution company sent me a message and said that the show blew up in none other than Oklahoma. So I don't know how or I don't know why, because again, the last uh, ep- the last show was a solo one, and I think the one before that I talked to uh, Mr. Figluzzi and uh, Cheryl McCollum before that. Uh, both of, uh, Cheryl and Josh, we talked, they, they want to come back on, so we definitely are looking forward to that. But yeah. Uh, it was, it was like just, you know, it, it gets downloaded gradually, usually mostly when it comes out and then people go back and download the other ones. So I'm going to be around a while because the listeners keep going up, which I love, but, uh, yeah, it blew up. There was hundreds of downloads. I didn't see what the, what the final tally was, but it was enough to, to trigger the distribution company to let me know. So if anybody is listening in Oklahoma and you have any other fascinating facts or you want to apologize for parking meters. Uh, reach out to me um, uh, at, Der- uh, at Derek Vampire Slayer on Twitter 
or just Google the Truth or Derek show. Uh, you can get a hold of me through the Podbean. Uh, you can email me at podstars with a Z dot connect at outlook.com. And again, anything you want to talk about, uh, constructive criticism, you have questions, you have any thoughts or ideas or really a- anything at all, please. Um, one of the one of the the listeners when I did uh, we were talking about food before. Somebody else had said if you had uh, we had a, we had a, a conversation on Twitter that saying if you had to eat one meal uh, three times a day for the rest of your life what would it be? One of the other comments the first one was chicken wings and damn if I don't agree with that uh, only because there's a million different flavors. Uh, I mean you. you <laughs> You'd probably take twenty five years off your life if you ate chicken wings three times a day. Yeah, that that seemed like a, like a locked in answer for me. And then one of the comments underneath that was obviously you would think buffalo sauce would be number one, and it's not. So when a study by Farmer and the Butcher uh, went through, it was a lot of people. I don't have the number in front of me, but I want to say it was five or ten thousand, or maybe even more. Uh, buffalo was number two, which makes no sense. But uh, I, I guess for people that uh, don't like spice, uh, honey garlic came in at number one, which for me, I would rather eat anything else. Uh, number three came in at uh, just barbecue chicken wings, like a barbecue sauce. Uh, number four, southern fried chicken wings, which I don't think I've really had. I've had some smoked stuff and things of that one, like nature, but I don't know. The original kind of uh, double-dusted and deep-fried seems to be the best. Number five at honey soy. And number six, at sweet chili, which I kind of get. Sweet chili kind of goes well on everything. I've, I've had it like as a pizza sauce base and all that. But yeah, I was I was shocked to find out that the buffalo sauce got knocked out at number one. So I don't know. Reach out to me. Let me know what you think. Or if there's like a secret sauce. Because I know for, for dipping, uh, it's usually blue cheese. But I, I've been putting like um, at Costco, they sell those two huge Hidden Valley ranch uh, ranch dressings. And I've been doing everything with that the last little while. Again, I think I, I, a few episodes ago, I was telling you guys about how to make pizza at home. And uh, I use that and sriracha as a pizza sauce base instead of red sauce. And in the 55 people I've, <laughs> I've force-fed pizza to up here, every single person has liked the, liked the white sauce one better. So yeah, uh, obviously give that a shot. Uh, the other thing, the, uh, the uh, that Hidden Valley thing that came across uh, interesting was, I don't know if anybody came across the uh these artisanal diamonds they're making now uh they actually made i just this is just proof that there's stupid people out there with too much money because uh hidden valley actually made a diamond out of ranch dressing and again you can google this it sounds made up so in in six months they i it took six months they heat it up uh they do the i don't know it's some sort of plasma thing i, I saw a video on, on artisanal diamonds which kind of seems strange to me if i was going to buy one i'd rather the maybe not a blood diamond that uh, did come out of the earth a hidden valley got together with these people and made this uh it's not a huge diamond i mean i don't know what the carrot size and all that sort of thing but i don't know if you look at it it's probably about the size of a baby fingernail maybe a little bit bigger uh, goes to auction. They say it starts at three hundred and ten bucks. I thought, okay, you know, it, it's kind of a cool thing. Like, I, I again, ranch. I love Hidden Valley. I love dipping my stuff in it. But I don't. I'm not. <laughs> I'm. <laughs> I'm not emotionally invested in ranch sauce in any stretch of the imagination. So this thing goes on for three hundred bucks. You probably think, okay, it'll sell for that because it's kind of cool. 
And maybe you think, all right, well, it's an auction. Maybe it goes up to five. Maybe it goes up to 600. Maybe even a thousand. So you'd think that, but no. The final bid that the guy, I'm assuming it's a guy because <laughs> this seems like something a man would do, uh, paid $12,550 for a <laughs> ranch diamond. Uh, diamond made out of ranch dressing sold for $12,550. Um, it was under 400 tons of pressure for six months. It was two carrots. <laughs> and in brackets, it says carrot, like the carrot that you would dip in it, right? I don't know. I thanks. I didn't see who sent that over to me, but thank you because uh, again, between that, I was busy uh, doing show research, diving into the Oklahoma rabbit holes between parking meters and ranch diamonds, and you know, time just got away from me. <laughs> there was a there was a couple of other things that came through. Uh, again, a lot of positive feedback from me rattling on by myself last time. Uh, somebody wrote in and said, um, you know, you you talked about cocaine a little bit, and again, I'm, I'm going to give. Uh, parents' advice right now to like eat, feed your kids healthy food and that sort of thing up until uh, they turn about 16. Because from the age of like 16 to 22, your kids are just going to beat the hell out of their bodies. There, there's no way around it. And I talked to a lot of people, especially when their kids were younger, that says, Oh, I'm going to do things different. You know, my kids aren't going to go crazy. And we've had people work for us. The, we know kids. I mean, I knew kids that went to different private schools or public schools and lived in good neighborhoods and all that sort of thing, and none of it matters. People people going to go crazy. Case in point, I, I'm not going to say his name. I know, I know he wouldn't care. But uh, we had one of, one of those kids worked for, uh, worked for us years ago, and he was incredible. The guy never laid a day in his life. He never complained. None of this. Like a really, really strict upbringing. His his mother was uh, from Trinidad, and his dad was Italian, like old school Italian, right? Like so much so, I remember one day we worked like a ten or twelve hour day, and I I dropped him off at uh, at home at like nine or nine thirty at night, and his dad was in the driveway, like trying to fix, trying to take something off the car to get like a belt on or whatever, and like he gets out and he's like soaking wet and dirty and all that, and as soon as he gets out of the car, his dad's like, "Come on, boy, get on the ground. We got to get this thing off." And then uh, there was like a Tuesday that I saw him on the Wednesday. He's like, the, <laughs> my fucking dad kept me out there till like one thirty in the morning and we didn't even get it fixed. Again, this kid, he was good looking too. A good looking, hard worker, crazy parents and stuff. The shit this this guy used to get up to, like I'm just talking about like doing with the, the mollies and uh, cocaine and weed and all that sort of thing. And You know, I, I, again, I've talked to you guys about this before. My thing always just... Uh, having a beer at the end of the day you know what relaxing maybe i don't even drink beer usually during the day if i've got stuff to do like it's just one of those things i was never a drug guy again i could probably count the number of times i smoked pot on one hand but uh yeah obviously you know getting up to nonsense but uh but this guy here i just there was one funny story then i'll move on because in the he, he worked here for about two and a half years and he never missed a day never called in sick he was never late and then uh <laughs> We we finished up doing something on a Friday, and we had like this old ratty tarp, like a forty by eighty foot tarp. And he's like, uh, "Do you mind if I take this? I'm just gonna go up to the cottage and do something with it." I said, "Yeah, no problem." So he comes in on the Monday, and you can just tell there's something off about him, right? So he like struggles out through the day and all that sort of thing. And I was like, you know, uh, <laughs> I don't want to say his name again. I was like, "What the hell's going on with you?" He goes. When I was up at the cottage, he goes, they they invented a game, him and his buddies, called Slip and Slide Flip Cup. Now, what this is, you put the tarp over a hill at the bottom, you set up a table. 
you slide down the you slide down the tarp when you get to the bottom you play flip cup and you drink i said yeah but i said that sounds awful but you know way to go even what 22 and uh, he's like yeah but uh, we tried to get the tarp wet it still wasn't slippery so we covered in olive oil so you just i guess what happened was i guess we covered it in olive oil it was too slick and when he went down to the bottom he hit his head off the table and he gave himself a concussion so we got like halfway or three quarters through the day, and I was like, "Dude, you got to go see a doctor because, like, I could just tell like y- your your brain is not good." And uh, yeah, sure enough, he called me that night and he called me the next morning and he was like, "I'm sorry, man. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry." He goes, "But like the doctor said, like I have to go to sleep in like a dark room <laughs> until this gets better." A private school kid with like a good Catholic upbringing with two of the strictest parents ever is going to get up to all that nonsense. Everybody else is too. So. You know, we're handing out shout-outs and we're handing out advice on the Truth or Derek show today. But you know what? The best thing to do is just talk to your kids, let them know you're there for them, and try your best to point them in the right direction. And uh, for God's sakes, feed them healthy. Because all those healthy organs and that healthy body that you're going to build for those first 16 or 17 years is going to take a beating between the ages of 16 and 22. And you could take that to the bank. I said you could take it to the bank. A lot of other stuff here. Yeah, the dipping sauces. Again, I got to figure out a way to put the last episode up because I answered a ton of listener questions and stuff. But you know what? Double fire them over to me because uh, I'm actually I'm going on vacation uh, next week for 10 days. I'd really like to crank out another show or two because I know I'm waiting two or three weeks between shows. And uh, in, in, in a way, it's not really it's not really fair to, to the people that are looking forward to it. I know. I don't want to sound all high and mighty and say, like, well, what are you guys going to do without me? <laughs> but uh, I know the first couple of weeks we were, like, every week, uh, kind of on a Monday or a Thursday. And I really do want to get back to that when I get back from vacation. So I promise you I will get my, my schedule straightened out of all the guests together. And, again, we got a couple of um, sponsorship deals on the back burner. So we're going to start having some contests and stuff. we got lots of fun lined up on the old T or D podcast. Oh yeah, sorry. When I was I was saying earlier before when they uh, the guy was asking about um, the cocaine thing, he sent me a news story, which he sent me a, a news story which I had no idea was a thing. So this guy, uh, I guess he he's crossing the border. I just I kind of skimmed the story because the the, it, the story wasn't really the point. Because I guess uh, again I dove into this and I found out that it happens a lot. So a guy is driving down the street. Well, to say it's up here in Ontario. Uh, and his his car tire blows. It's shredded, right? So he pulls over, jacks it up, pulls the tire off, throws the other one on. He's looking at the other tire, and he realizes that the inside of the tire is full of bags of cocaine. I don't know what my my first thought obviously went to. Well, can you sell it? <laughs> Apparently, it was about one hundred and twenty thousand dollars worth. He called the police right away, and I thought, you know, okay, that's that, that's what I would ultimately do. But obviously, the the first thing that goes through your head when you see that it's like, can I make some money on it? But reading the article further, apparently a lot of people do this. They use people as mules without the people knowing. So obviously that car had a tracker on it or there was somebody following it or like something to that degree. And then I was reading the other stories where like some truckers, like there was one uh, one log truck that had pulled off into a, a truck stop, you know, in Maine. And then in the morning, you know, drove over the border and he got caught at the border. And in, uh, in between all the logs and stuff like that, there was like $175,000 worth of guns. There's people that just follow you around. They look, you know, for license plates if they're going across state lines or, you know, from Mexico to the U.S. or from the U.S. to Canada and vice versa. It's smart, man. They just, they follow you. They stick all the stuff in your car or in your truck and all that. And unbeknownst to you, 
it must be working because you know I've been pulled over at the border uh, a couple times, but they, I've never really been searched. It was funny the one of the first times I went to Pittsburgh, I took like an old company truck. I didn't clean out the back at all, and again in the, in the pool business, the the back of the trucks is like you know it, it turns up once a week you got to clean it out, but it's like half garbage and tools and pipes and pumps and you name it. But it just it's pretty much just a mountain of crap. I'll have to find some of my other ones. I'll see if I can put a picture up on Twitter if you guys want to see it. Uh, but uh, the, the truck was just a mess. So because it was a big white work truck, they waved us aside at the border. And the guy's like, you know, anything in here? Like, you hauling anything? I said, no, man. I said, you know, we're just going down for uh, for Steelers-Jets playoff game. It was cold. It was in uh, January. And he opens the back of the truck and he sees the mess. And as soon as he opens the back of the truck, he slams the door back shut. He's like, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> So apparently, uh, I was messy enough to um, to forego the search. I, I wasn't sneaking anything over, anyways. I know sometimes when I come on the way back, I do love uh, uh, getting some food and stuff like that. Like uh, our Walmart's up here, very uh, very bland. You guys are lucky in the U.S. to have Walmart's the way you do because uh, you guys like uh, thirty five different kinds of like skillet sensations and like twenty five different kinds of uh, mac and cheese. Like we have two. And then this Annie's company came along, so we have like three. But if you want like exotic mac and cheese, you're not going to get it up here unless you go to a restaurant and drop twenty bucks on it. Uh, yeah, so I just that news story came across, and it just it was another one of those things. I had no idea that there was a market for people using mules secretly. So I don't know how you're going to watch out for that, but uh, you definitely don't want to get caught on the wrong side of that. And if you do find a, a tire full of uh, full of drugs, call the police. Don't let that uh, don't let that two minute thought go through your head. Go, eh, you know what? These bags are pretty heavy. I will bet you I'll be able to uh, sell this for fifty grand because there's definitely somebody following you. <laughs> One last thing before we get to buzz, somebody sent across a, a question and asked uh, if they put you in a Walmart and sealed the door for twenty five years, do you think you could survive? And I'm one of those people that sometimes is like hopelessly optimistic because I think right off the bat, yeah, I'd be fine. I would, uh, so apparently the deal is 25 years, the door is closed, sealed. You have power and all that, but you don't have any technology, no internet. Uh, but you know, like Walmart sells seeds, you could grow vegetables. They have a bunch of freezers, so you could probably freeze all the fresh stuff and somehow figure out a way to dole that out and the canned goods and stuff. But then I start thinking it was like, okay, I've, you, I've, you managed to get through like the first two to three years. You've probably watched every DVD they sell there. Like at that part, you're probably looking through the DVDs, going like, "Oh, what am I gonna watch today? House season seven, or um, <laughs> two guys, a girl, and a pizza place season three, <laughs> or Friday Night Lights season five. Like, yeah, I don't know. I think I can. I think I could arrange the food thing with well, the gardening and all that sort of thing. But uh, I think overall. Um, I don't want to say you'd go crazy. I mean, it would probably be different if you had the internet, but the whole thing here is like, you know, survival, like that movie The Martian where they stick them up in space and you see if you can kind of make it work there. Again, I didn't give out any spoilers there. That's in the trailer. I know you guys are on me about spoilers. I'm very careful not to give away the ending of anything. And speaking of not giving away the ending to anything, I really want to get to uh, Lieutenant Colonel Buzz Patterson because... Some of the stuff he was talking about was mind-blowing. I, I talked to him a little bit off-air beforehand and after, and uh, I already want, want to have him back because this, I don't know, I don't know why, but this, the whole thing fascinates me. It's just, uh, 
uh, an amazing career, an amazing dude. Uh, like I said, an American hero. Uh, was going to um, was going to go uh, through the army to be a lawyer, and then ended up as a fighter pilot, and a pretty darn good one too. Especially uh, raising up the ranks all the way to military aid to Bill Clinton. But you know what? Why don't I let him tell you about it rather than so, me? Yeah, without so, further ado, without further let's ado, do it. But I did. Just, I just wanted to give you a quick heads up, and this is my bad. There's a tiny bit of echo uh, when I was talking to Mr. Patterson, and that was on me. We we had to switch computers uh, when we started, but uh, I took the interview. It was worse. We ran it through um, the editing program, Audacity, and there was another one. Uh, I think it was called Crumple Pop. I just wanted to give them a shout out because they were really helpful in getting this down, but. Again, I don't really think that a little bit of an echo is going to matter because this is—I'm telling you right now—this is one of the one of the, my favorite interviews I've done so far. So enjoy. All right, my next guest needs no introduction. Uh, he is the author of several New York Times best-selling books. He is a 20-year veteran of the Air Force. Um, also, he was military aide to President Bill Clinton, but also so much more. So please welcome American hero Lieutenant Colonel Buzz Patterson. How you doing, man? I'm doing great, bro. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. I noticed when I was reading that, I had to take a breath in between it because have you seen your resume lately? It's insane. <laughs> it's a little, it's a little lengthy. I need to shorten it up a little bit. Uh, you know what? There was actually just for you because I just I want to start at the beginning a little bit. Um, again, reading all that, how did you manage to move up the military ladder so quickly? Well, uh, it's based. The military is a meritocracy. And it's based on uh, how well you do. And in my case, I was a pilot, so I was flying a lot internationally and did some combat. And just got sort of getting promoted ahead of my peers uh, to major, to lieutenant colonel, and then to colonel. Um, so I was just fortunate. I was I was a single guy, and I was happy to go all around the world. And I think that's one of the reasons why the White House called me in 1995 to come interview for the position. I was just a guy that had some combat experience, and I'd been around for a little bit. And uh, they actually called me in to interview to be the president's military aide. Yeah, I was actually I was going to get to that shortly. I just again just in the beginning. Um, again, you said you were a single guy. Uh, did that help in your decision to join the military? And so obviously, why why join the military and why a pilot? That's a really good question, Derek. Actually, I uh, I was in graduate school at Virginia Tech and uh, had had plans to go to law school after uh, getting my uh, master's in economics. And I uh, started looking around. President Reagan became the president. So this is 1982, uh, three. You don't look and, that old. <laughs> you don't look old <laughs> enough to remember Ronald Reagan. Yeah, I, he's one of the reasons why I came in. The, uh, you know, with the, the years of Jimmy Carter, I was in college for the most part, and I knew that the, the country had a lot of malaise going on and the military was really suffering. And then we elected Reagan, and I thought, well, I'll go in the Air Force and be an attorney. And then my recruiter at the time said, yeah, we'll pay your way through law school, but we'd really like you to be a pilot. We're really hurting for pilots. And I had never flown anything in my entire life. That's fascinating. So they sent me to uh, San Antonio, Texas for a kind of a three-month flight screening program. And then I went into Air Force uh, commissioning program. 
And uh, three months after that, I was uh, second lieutenant, and they were sending me to pilot training. And honestly, Derek, I can tell you that when I got to pilot training, I started hanging out with the guys and the girls and flying airplanes and, and flying supersonic. I just thought, this is great. I don't want to go to law school. So I, uh, I stayed a pilot, and, uh, and I've flown for 35 years now. Uh, 20 in the Air Force, and then 16 for Delta, and I retired from Delta just a few years ago. Yeah, I just wanted to go back to when you were talking about with the Army and medical school. It's like the Army looked at you and said, hey, this guy would be a great lawyer, but he'd probably also be a good pilot. <laughs> yeah, I guess they needed pilots a lot more than they needed lawyers, and I was just looking for somebody to pay my way through uh, law school. Yeah, of course. And then uh, they go, well, this is kind of a good gig, too, and you get flight pay and all this other stuff when you get through the program, so... Uh, it was you know, it wasn't easy. The uh, year of uh, pilot training I had in the Air Force was strenuous. They really put me through the ringer, but I made some of the best friends that are still my friends for life. Um, obviously, somebody had to sit you down at some point and say, "Being a fighter pilot's going to be more dangerous than being a lawyer." That didn't throw you off? No, I actually kind of uh, I kind of seized on that. Actually, I kind of liked the the, the thrill of uh, flying combat and. Um, my, in fact, my first combat experience, I'd only been an a Air Force pilot for about five months. And then uh, the Grenada invasion happened under Ronald Reagan, and uh, I was flying in the combat as a second lieutenant co-pilot after only a couple of months flying the airplane. And we were, in, we were in Grenada on day one, and I was in Grenada on day two, carrying the 82nd Airborne. And uh, dropping those guys, and uh, so it, it, it just—I I, kind of just glommed onto it, loved it, and it, I will tell you that probably one of the best decisions I ever made in my life. Sixty-nine, sixty-nine countries over the years, six continents. Really? And I, in fact, I met my wife in Japan. She was a, she was a North Californian, but. She, I met her in Japan because I was an Air Force pilot flying around the world. So we have uh, been married for 26 years and have three beautiful kids. So it all worked out. Yeah, that's crazy. Just the, the, the slightest thing, you're going to be a lawyer, and then you're going to be a pilot, and then you meet your wife on a combat mission and just life. Yeah. Uh, so sorry, just going back when you were saying you were about five months in when you got your first mission. How does that exactly go down? Like you just, you know, you show up for work one day and then I'm assuming you get approached to say, you know, listen, uh, this is what's going down. Yeah, they, uh, we actually, we knew what was going on. Uh, we were actually flying. I was flying on my way to Beirut, uh, Lebanon, and I got turned around by the Air Force and said, come back to Charleston. We need to go up to uh, Fort Bragg and pick up the 82nd Airborne. We kind of had an idea what was going on in Grenada, but we didn't know for sure. And, so, and we didn't really have much intelligence. We flew down there kind of unarmed and unafraid and just did it. How much of that decision-making do you have to do on the fly? Like, again, you're five months in, and they just say, you know, come back, here's your mission, here's this, here's that. And then you just kind of fly down there and figure it out, or is it a team effort? Well, pretty much, in terms of Grenada, it was pretty much the, the deal. I mean, we got better intelligence-wise over the years in my Air Force career. I would fly. I flew into combat a lot in Bosnia and the Persian Gulf, and we got better about how we prepared our guys and girls to go in. But Grenada was kind of seat of the pants, man, figure it out. Yeah, that's wild. So um, 
I think uh, when I was reading, how many missions did you fly in your uh, 20 years? Well, I flew for 20 years. I can't, I can't tell you the number of missions. I probably had about 6,000 hours total flying time. And again, wow. I flew in and out of 69 countries. Uh, the, my combat was specifically was uh, Grenada, Rwanda, Bosnia, the Persian Gulf a couple times, uh, Haiti, uh, back in the day when that was going to hell. Unbelievable. Uh, it hasn't gotten much better. No, it's not gotten any better at all. Thanks so, to the Clintons. Is there? <laughs> oh, yeah, we're going to get there. Don't worry. I got everything here. I, I got everything here. Uh, is there, uh, just again, back to the uh, the flying in and out of countries, is there one particular mission that sticks out that you're either proud of or horrified by or anything like that? No, I'm really proud. Actually, I'm really proud. I was a squadron commander for um, the U.S. Air Force guys that were going into Bosnia during the Bosnian War in 1994. So I uh, I was always the first pilot in and the last pilot out. And we were there for six weeks. And I just, you know, just coming back to uh, where we were staying for those six weeks and making sure all of my guys and girls came home safely was stressful. And we did a great job. We had like a 99.7% on-time launch rate. Unbelievable. We delivered all kinds of uh, amazing humanitarian aid and um, the media. Uh, in a time when the, the Bosnians really wanted to shoot down an American airplane. So uh, it was nuts. It's funny you were just talking about keeping on time, because I was going to ask you afterwards, what was it like going for the Army, uh, sorry, working with the Air Force, and then going to Delta? I could just imagine, like, you walking into the room and say, listen, you know, <laughs> let's get our shit together. <laughs> well, Delta, the Air Force was actually a little more stringent on takeoff times and arrival times than Delta has been. Delta was a great company, don't get me wrong. Totally different flying. You know, from being in a military unit and being in charge and having all these guys and girls working for you and then going to Delta where you're just another number, just another employee, you know, 12,000 pilots, you get kind of get lost in the mix of the commercial stuff. I did really enjoy flying commercial. I enjoyed flying for Delta, but I really relished my Air Force years. So why retire from the Air Force? Is it kind of like a 20 years and you're done, or it was just time for you to make a change? You know, it was a family thing. Yeah. We had our, our uh, my wife and I were newly married, and we had our first child, and she was born premature, and she, was, she needed a lot of hospitalization and uh, oxygen and heart monitors and stuff. And I thought, you know, I can't keep flying around the world. Let's go to, uh, I thought at the time, I said, let's go to an airline. And have have more stability, and it ended up being much less stability. Yeah, <laughs> imagine, especially again working. Um, yeah, just uh, working with the the pilot. It just it sounds like a like a crazy time. Like uh, in that first couple of weeks when you were doing the Delta thing, did you kind of miss the? I don't know if it's a rush or just that thrill of combat or the camaraderie. Like, was it really different? Like you just said, one of twelve thousand pilots just going in there and you know getting your paycheck again. Yeah, it was completely different, and it wasn't. It was a whole different feel, Derek. It was, you know, I, I remember the pilot lounge, the Delta pilot lounge in Atlanta, and I'd go down there, you know, for my flights. I flew out of Atlanta for my first few years, and then I transferred out to Los Angeles, where I am now. But uh, I remember going to the pilot lounge, and I, you know, Air Force squadrons are a lot like fraternities. Everybody is having a great time. They work hard. They play hard. And then I just go to the Delta pilot lounge, and you see all these guys, girls that were just morose and 
having to do their thing for a paycheck. And that's when I start to realize maybe I'd made a mistake in terms of the flying gig. Is the is Delta good money? Like, is it is it kind of thing? Like, it's a headache. But you know, again, we all got to make money. No, it's good money. It used to be. It's better money than the Air Force. Really? Uh, it, it, work rules are about the same. Uh, you know, and I, again, I didn't. I didn't. I liked flying for Delta. I, I liked the guys that I flew with. But it wasn't nearly as gratifying as coming back from a mission. You know, when you've gone into combat and come back, and all your people are safe and. That was uh, that was exhilarating, and Delta was not exhilarating. <laughs> I can't I can't imagine there's any um, any comparison. Okay, so uh, yeah, you said before, so back and you're doing your um, your stint in the Air Force, and then all of a sudden you get approached to interview for a job with Bill Clinton. Yeah, so I was a squadron commander in Northern California at Travis Air Force Base, and uh, operations officer, and then a squadron commander. And I got a phone call. This is a true story, Derek. I got a phone call in my office at my squadron in uh, Travis Air Force Base. And the guy on the phone said uh, it was the White House. They wanted to talk to me about possibly interviewing to be the president's military aide. And Bill Clinton's I, on the said, phone. He wants to talk to you. <laughs> well, basically, as I said, flying squadrons are fraternities. So I just figured it was the guys down the hall jerking my chair. Yeah, so crank call. <laughs> so I hung up on the White House. Uh, and then they called back and said, no, seriously, this is the White House. We want you to come out and interview for us. And it's a job It's a job you can't apply for. They find you. Really? I was one of six that the White House had been recommended uh, to by the Pentagon. So I, I, I knew the job existed, but I didn't really know much about it. And I so I flew out there. Um, and interviewed for three days. The first day was all classified information and my background checks and all that kind of stuff. And then I interviewed all the way up, just short of President Clinton at the time. And I got called that night in my hotel room. They said, well, we want you to be the guy, and we'd like you to come meet the president tomorrow morning in the Oval. And I did. And uh, I was 3,000 miles away from home and kind of missing my home and missing my flying job. And I remember at the time, Derek, my, I called my then fiance now my wife and said i don't think i want the job and she says you can't say no to the white house no it's, it's, so it's, yeah. i i called him and said yeah i'll take it and I, the next morning i met bill clinton in the oval office and uh, the rest you know for the next two years i was his right hand guy yeah so um you get the job you show up like what was your typical day working with uh with clinton like like just you get there and you're break everything down or is it just kind of waiting for something to happen no there's no typical day at the white house the clinton white house for sure every day was different we actually the military aides had a uh, office in the white house and a bedroom in the white house so one of us was with him 24 7 so whether he's in the white house or he's on the road but we were on marine one air force one uh, flying all over the world by his side with the uh, nuclear satchel. So there was no one day that was like any other. I was there doing all the Monica Lewinsky stuff and uh, Paula Jones and all that stuff. So I was, I would say every single day you woke up and say a prayer and say, okay, what's this, what's this day going to hold? What did he do today? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, what, what is this day going to go hold? And how do I not embarrass him or get him hurt or have the, or fumble the nuclear football? 
So uh, obviously, a lot of responsibility. When do you think your relationship with him started to fall apart? Like, you know, obviously, a huge honor getting that job, showing up, working at the White House. Like, that's this badass. Like, what, was there a particular day when you showed up and said, you know what, this is going to start to go south? Well, I never had that feeling about him uh, personally because my job was just like the Secret Service guys. My job was just to be there, be by his side, answer any questions he might have, carry the nuclear football, which is about a you know a forty-five pound satchel that has all the nuclear capabilities of the of the United States. And so, being around him, I saw his character flaws early. But I, you know, it wasn't my job as a military guy to say anything or do anything. But I think I would say that I really enjoyed being around him personally. We jogged together. We went to the golf course together. But I just saw instantaneously, within a couple of weeks probably, Derek, that he, he didn't really have any moral backbone or, or integrity about how he prosecuted his responsibilities. And, and, and just like the Secret Service guys and girls, I just sucked it up every day and went to work and, and uh, to serve the office of the presidency, not the person individually. Which is interesting because you obviously, you know, raising up the, going up the military ladder as good as you did, you were obviously, you're patriotic, you know, you, you go to a schedule, you, you keep the trains running on time, or the planes running on time. And then you get this kind of dream job at the White House. And like you just said, you're, you're working with uh, the president who's kind of, you know, not going a different direction than I would imagine you wanted it to go. Well, that plus Hillary and everything else is surrounded the administration. I mean, we can get into the Hillary stories, too, and I've got some that have curled your toes. But, uh, <laughs> um, so, yeah, that was just that. And, you know, it, I rem it reminded me when I first got there, you know, I'd, I'd been working in... Air Force squadrons and wings for years, and, I, and we were used to a certain military protocol and precision and schedule making and just being accurate. And there was none of that at the Clinton White House. They were just they were just like it was a frat party gone wrong. And uh, there wasn't a lot of strategic decisions. There wasn't. It was just kind of a day to day putting out fires experience, and uh, I had to help with that, which wasn't my job, but I, I made sure some of the younger staffers knew what was good and what was stupid. Yeah, and, and again, speaking of that, see, it's weird that you, you, you had to spend a lot of time with them, and obviously, again, you're, you're a military guy, you're a patriotic guy. Was it hard not to just, not shake them, but, but just say, you know what, like, because I would imagine you guys heard about Monica Lewinsky, and I've, I've heard that other people were, some of the women were told, you know, try not to be alone with them, that sort of thing. Was there any point where you kind of just had the opportunity or maybe didn't have the opportunity to say to them, like, what the hell are you doing? That wasn't my position, although I will tell you that a couple of times I did walk in on him and her and uh, in the Oval Office, and one time I was actually placing a phone call for him to the president of Egypt. Hosting Mubarak at the time, and uh, he wouldn't come to the phone, so I went into the Oval Office, and he was in the, the other outer office with her. Not, you know, I, I think he saw my disgust and disdain, but the only option I really had, Derek, was to resign from the job, and I didn't want to quit working for the for the presidency. No. you know, and, and I had some great friends there that I was working with, and. Um, I just saluted smartly like most of the military guys do and did my job. And then I, I, I will tell you this, when I left 
after my two years stint there, I could not wait to get back to the Air Force and back to the the integrity and character and discipline that the military offers in this country. And it was liberating to be out of there after two years and just seeing what the Clintons had wrought. Yeah, it's, it's kind of funny. You're like, I'd rather go fight a war in a third world country than work with Bill Clinton at the White House. Well, I tell you what, being shot at with live bullets was much easier than working for President Bill Clinton. <laughs> oh, man. So, again, going back to working there when you're trying to do your job and you're doing your thing, like, I, I, a few questions. Uh, what exactly, like, is involved with the, the nuclear football? Because I, I find that whole thing fascinating. So there's several elements, actually, to being a military aide to the president, and there's been just a handful of us over the years. Uh, so the nuclear football part is the most visible aspect. So the, the military aide carries the nuclear football, and the president carries the nuclear codes. In this case, Clinton carried them in his pocket, uh, rubber-banded to his credit cards. And and the credit card, the uh, nuclear football codes are actually called, we call them the biscuit. So it takes both the president of the United States and the military aide with the football to prosecute uh, nuclear launches or retaliation. The bigger job, though, Derek, was the fact that we were like the OMC and operational commander for uh, Air Force One, Marine One, Camp David, um, all the places the president would go. We were kind of responsible for the, the doctors and the nurses and the Secret Service guys that were doing all the motorcade routes, whether we were in D.C. or we were in Johannesburg, South Africa. And uh, so as a military aide, you've got the football, which obviously can, can ruin the world. And you also have all this other stuff that you're trying to do to keep the president safe. Yeah, I was going to say, because uh, I know uh, uh, there's a lot of uh, headaches going around with how much time certain presidents spend at Camp David and all that. Like, uh, what is, like, secure? I mean, essentially, it's a, it's a vacation home, but, like, how do you secure something like that? Uh, Camp David or the football? Uh, Camp David. Camp David is a military installation that the Navy runs and the Marine Corps guards. And it's just an old, it's nothing special. It's very austere. It's in a beautiful part of the mountains in uh, western Maryland. And it's a good getaway place, but it's a place that the president can still do his job. He still has all the communications he needs. He has all the staff members he needs. He has the military aid. I had my own cabin. Um, you know, there's a there's a, a dining hall that the president would eat at. And it's... But he, he was always in touch with uh, – Clinton was. I can't tell you what Biden does. I think Biden probably sleeps all day. <laughs> but Clinton would actually get some work done uh, when I was there with him. And it's it was interesting. You know, we we did a lot of vacations with the Clintons. So I, I went to St. Thomas with him, Martha's Vineyard, uh, did a lot of overseas trips. Um, and those were interesting because you still were on duty, but they really weren't. Yeah. So you had to be around. Weird line to walk with your 40-pound bag. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, some of it, I, I can't I can't complain. Actually, one time, Derek, I called my wife, then my fiancé, and I was in Air Force One over Africa just to call her and tell her I loved her. And she's going, and we were on our way up to a cat to stay in a castle in Denmark. 
And she goes, I don't want to hear your pain and your pity. Because you're staying in castles, and I haven't hung with the kids. Yeah, I've been home with three kids, and you're in a private airplane with the president going to a castle. Exactly, yeah. Watching, we all had... The, the Air Force One has these reclinable seats that are amazing, and everybody has their own TV set. And I had my 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 secure fat phone, satellite phone, and I had my regular phone. It was also a satellite phone. So you get kind of spoiled. They take they take pretty good care of you. I can imagine. And uh, as a military aide, I mean, they kind of the Air Force One guys were my buddies because I was an Air Force pilot too. So right. they would take exceptionally good uh, care of me. But I was always still on duty. I had the football right next to me the entire time, whether we were going from Johannesburg back to D.C. or flying to Shanghai or wherever. So were you kind of like a two-part question here? Obviously, you're spending a lot of time with them when this whole um, this cheating scandal and all that sort of thing. Is it kind of an awkward situation when you're obviously there? You know, you're trying to do your job, but you have to travel around with uh, Bill and Hillary, knowing that everything's going on when you're just like, I just want to do my job. <laughs> Well, it was uh, challenging to say, personally, to say the least. In fact, I'll, I'll share a story with you, Derek, that happened right in the midst of the Mike Lewinsky thing hitting the press. I told you about the fact that the president carries a little credit card-sized document, which is called, uh, which, which are the nuclear codes. The military guys call it the biscuit because you you tear in, you tear into it and you read the the codes and stuff, so that the Pentagon knows that you're in fact the commander in chief. Well, one morning I was in his office, the Oval Office, to brief him on uh, nuclear processes and if he had any questions about military stuff in general. And he confessed that he had lost the nuclear codes. Really? Yeah. And he didn't have any idea how long it had been since he'd seen them. So I pressed him on that. We uh, he, he couldn't remember if it had been days or weeks or months. And we did a full sweep of the White House really? and never found him. And it never happened before. And this was because he was all focused on Monica, what was happening with the potential impeachment. And he wasn't focused on national security. And there was a point in time there, up, possibly up to three months, where the president didn't have any ability to authenticate himself and, and respond with nuclear weapons. That's absolutely unbelievable. Well, I mean, I, you could, I mean, I can't imagine losing it, but you would imagine that the first day he noticed it was missing, he should have said something. He should have said something, and it had never happened before. No. So when, when I called the Pentagon and said, hey, you know, i got a guys, so we have our own, there's a, there's a kind of a secret Pentagon office that does all the nuclear stuff for the U.S., and I called those guys and said, hey, you know what, you're not going to believe this, but he lost it. <laughs> and they go, oh. I don't know if I can cuss on this show, but they basically said, oh, shit. You can. <laughs> yeah. So we had to scramble to uh, get them to recreate codes. And I'm not just talking about his codes, Derek. I'm talking about codes for all the missile silos, all the nuclear submarines we have, all the fighters and bombers that have nuclear capability. We had to change codes across the entire U.S. military. And that was probably not a pretty penny. See, it, it's amazing. Well, no, I can't imagine. But it, it's amazing to think that, like, I can't imagine why anyone would want to be president because it just it seems like it's one headache after another. But to actually get to that point and be in charge of, you know, so much that it just, you're right. It just, that two years that you were there, it just, it sounds like it was one shit show after another. Well, it was. It was. You know, it was, I can't imagine, you know, it was fun at times. It was incredibly grueling at times. 
you know, I, I had a bedroom in the White House, and I couldn't go to sleep until he went to bed. So I, I would have the hotel, the, the White House operator call me and say, okay, POTUS is down. He's got a 6 o'clock in the morning wake-up call. So I would get to bed about 1. I put my alarm on at 5 because uh, he, liked to, he liked to jog early in the morning, and I had to be down there with the football ready to jog with him. So Even though he didn't have the codes, your your football didn't work. You know, at the time, yeah, I wished I'd known. I really would have been handy information. Is there? A, I mean, that, that is that is fascinating. It's mind blowing, but it just you know, you shudder to think what could have happened had you have actually needed that. Or is it one of those things that could have fallen into the wrong hands, or it was just we wouldn't have been ready when we needed to be ready. We wouldn't have been ready when we needed to be ready. I mean, if somebody if it fell in the wrong hands, there wasn't much they could do with it. But uh, the, the thing was, it would have been, you know, if somebody launches on us militarily from, say, China or North Korea or Russia, there's only a scant few minutes you have the opportunity to uh, figure out what the threat is and, re and retaliate. I'm talking about 15, 20 minutes. That and close. If there's, yeah, if there's no way that the president can authenticate himself with the National Military Command Center in the Pentagon, nothing happens. So that's the, that was the downside of all of that. And that was probably one of the things that was my most disappointing experience with President Clinton was the fact that he, A, lost them, B, he didn't tell me about it, and we had to go months without possibly being able to respond. Yeah. And he did it again, apparently. He did it again, apparently, a couple of years later when I was gone. So he lost them at least twice. Is that uh, the most irresponsible thing you saw working at the White House? <laughs> Got to be up there. Well, that probably in terms of national security was the most uh, irresponsible, but I also was on Air Force One once, Derek. We were coming back from uh, uh, Europe, and the, so the typical scenario is on these White House trips is you fly into Andrews Air Force Base on Air Force One, and then you helicopter a Marine One over to the South Lawn of the White House, and you land there. And so we were coming home late. It was about midnight, and we got on Marine One and came over to the White House, and I put him to bed. I went to my bedroom, and I got a phone call from the Air Force uh, Chief, Air Force One Chief Pilot saying, uh, I've got a problem here. Um, one of my flight attendants, female flight attendants, was sexually molested on board Air Force One last night. He got her in a galley and pressed up against her, and she was a staff sergeant in the Air Force, um, and... It was the middle of the night, and I got back to my room, and I talked to the pilot, Colonel Mark Donnelly. He goes, yeah, this happened. And I said, okay, well, I'll walk down to the Oval Office tomorrow morning. And, and I said, what does she want? He said, she just wants an apology. She's married. She's an active duty staff sergeant in the Air Force. She has children, and she doesn't want to be another bimbo eruption for Bill Clinton. So I had to walk down to the Oval Office the next morning and tell the commander-in-chief, at the time I was a major, in the Air Force to say, sir, you need to uh, make this right. You need to talk to this woman. And he goes, okay, set it up for the next time we're on Air Force One. So two weeks later, we were all in Air Force One again, and I arranged for her to come to his office on Air Force One. And his apology, Derek, was so uncontrite. He said, I'm sorry if I hurt your feelings. Oh. And that was it. Yeah, it's and one so of those kind of apologies, of like, uh, oh, I'm sorry yeah. if you were offended by something that I did. Can you imagine saying that to your wife? No, I can't. <laughs> uh, was that, uh, did that happen before or after the Lewinsky stuff broke? Right before. 
So the Lewinsky stuff, I knew about Lewinsky from the day I walked in there. Because I noticed that there was a young female intern that had the same oval axis that I did. Yeah. And she was an intern working in the other building. And I talked to Secret Service guys. They said, you know what? You don't want to go there. That's kind of presidential best friend stuff. Don't don't, uh, don't make waves there. So the thing on Air Force One happened, I think, in November of 97. And then in 1998, the Monica Lewinsky thing actually hit the press. So it was, uh, that was the same day I was asking him about the codes and he lost them. So January 21st, 1998 was the day that he told me he'd lost the codes. It's just, again, you're telling, these stories are fascinating, but mainly because you come from this strict uh, military system and all that sort of thing, and you think you're going to be working at the White House. This is going to run like a well-oiled machine, and you get there, and it's just a disaster. It was anything but. As you, as you pointed out, it was basically every day was a shit show. And it was, how do, how do we circle the wagons and protect him from himself, basically? And then, of course, Hillary got involved. And she became kind of the co-president. When the whole Monica thing broke out, she kind of became the co-president. She was holding all the meetings upstairs in the residence to talk about how to crisis manage this thing. So at that point, he lost all leverage with her. Oh, well, yeah, without they had question. A business yeah. relationship. You, you think she knew if it was, if, I mean, it, it had obviously happened before, and I'm assuming it happened after. But was she aware of that, or she, it was like a, it was just like a, uh, political mayor. She was totally aware of it, although she wrote in her memoirs a couple of months later that she had no idea, but no, she was in charge of it. Well, she's not stupid. I mean, again, it doesn't see, it doesn't seem like, uh, like Clinton was, uh, you know, being secretive at all. Like if you were walking in on it, I, I would imagine everybody at the White House kind of knew. Well, the Secret Service guys knew. They told me what was going on. And it wasn't just Monica. There were other ladies as well. But, you know, Hillary, nothing happened in that White House without Hillary knowing it. Uh, and she kind of ran. She was actually the person that kept the trains on time and, and told him what to say and what not to say. She orchestrated when he said, I did not have sex with that woman. You know, that was Hillary telling him to say, telling him to say that. So uh, her, her, she's not, she's not stupid, uh, but she's hell on wheels. She's evil. She's vindictive. She seems, and I'm so happy. She's not a president. Did you have to spend a lot of time with her, or was this kind of passive? Well, I was around him every day. So when she was around, I was around her too. Now she did her own thing a lot, but she went on all the family vacations. So when we were up at Camp David, or we were at St. Thomas or Martha's Vineyard. I basically was right down the street from them and t- trying to take care of them and make sure they had everything they needed. But, uh, no, she's not a likable person. How so? She's uh, very profane, uh, very duplicitous, kind of the tried to be the power behind the throne. Uh, you know, Bill, for all of his problems and warts, was a pretty likable guy. I got along with him great. He seemed likable. I, 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 I think, I think that's why people it. loved him as a president, because he really seemed likable. He's very likable. He's funny. He's gregarious. If I if I saw him in a bar today, he'd come over and hug me. Hillary would come over and rip my heart out. 
Well, it's actually, uh, Bill, I guess upon your exit from the White House, I, I read some of those, uh, what he said about you, and it was insanely positive. Like, he, he was a, he was a big fan of yours, definitely. Yeah, he was, and, and like I said, we got along great, and I didn't really want to write my first book. I had no intention of ever writing anything. I was a pilot. And after I left the White House, I went to the Air Force Academy and was a commander there for three years and uh, retired, uh, as we talked about earlier, retired in 2001 to go fly for Delta because of our daughter and our family. And uh, my friends that I'd worked with at the White House, some of the military guys, were like, hey, you know, we're still all active. The only person they can talk about who this guy actually is is you. Why don't you write a book? So I wrote Dereliction of Duty. And uh, did it in like three months, and it came out and uh, hit New York Times bestseller list for about six months. And I'd never again. I've, I'd only written like technical manuals and how to fly in combat stuff for the Air Force. I'd never written any nonfiction piece, really. But uh, I, I wrote Dereliction, and it, it kind of put me on a different path uh, in terms of my activism and my writing and my speaking. And I've been doing it ever since. Is that your favorite book? It's my best book. Yeah. So I've got actually the, the best written book that I've got is called War Crimes, my third book, which was probably the best work of art I've ever done. And it didn't do nearly as well commercially because I wasn't talking about the Clintons. Um, I just I had a question afterwards I was going to ask about the book because obviously you were um, – you were involved in some stuff that, you know, uh, you're not allowed to talk about security, that sort of thing. So is it like when you're doing your speaking, when you're do writing books and stuff like that, you really have to be careful what you say because, uh, again, you don't want to um, let any secrets out of the Yeah, so uh, my White House NDA was that I would never release any classified information about my experience there, but it didn't say I couldn't talk about my experiences there. So uh, I'm very careful. When I write my books, I make sure the Pentagon uh, vets them. My publisher has an attorney group that also vets them. And if there's anything in there that they see that is possibly on the on the line, they'll call me out on it. But they but they haven't so far. They'd be saying, are you know, are you sure you can say this? And I can say, yeah, I'm sure I can say it because it's open source now. Well, yeah, uh, I guess kind of it, it, it is a strange line to walk because, you know, even when you're sitting here talking to me, you're like, yeah, with the stuff on the pilot and stuff. I mean, it happened. So I understand, you know, like the, 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 him losing the codes thing still blows my mind. But I, I would imagine there was probably a lot of other stuff there that happened during that two years that you can't talk about. Well, there's a lot in there. I mean, I, in terms of the military stuff, I really can't go into a lot of that. I can't really go into what's actually in the football. I can give you kind of a broad brush of how it works, that kind of stuff. And I wouldn't want, I mean, as we speak today, Derek, there is a military aide with, uh, with Joe Biden right now yeah. carrying the same football. And I would, has, I would never want to, uh, you know, possibly infringe on their, what they're doing and their safety. Um, and I really kind of, I've got to be honest with you, as an editorial comment, I can't. I can't imagine. I, I mean, I worked for Bill Clinton. Thought he was probably the worst president we'd ever had. Now I'm looking at Joe Biden, and I'm kind of thinking, well, I bet those military aides are hating life because they got a guy that's even more unstable and, and more unable to answer questions and to possibly show up if uh, the, the the balloon goes up and, and stuff goes south. Well, it, it does seem like 
Again, it's, it's it's so surprising to hear about your stuff at the White House because again, you assume that it that it runs like a well-oiled machine, and then the, the more you start to look inside this machine, again, I'm I'm not entirely familiar with what uh, Biden's White House is like, but it, it's just you, you like to think you know that the, the people in power are, are running things to the best of their ability, and then you you start to see these holes, like you know, you've yeah. talked about some of the holes that were in the national security, and that was the 25 years ago, like. It's alarming to think that they, these problems are still happening. They're still happening, and I think they're probably happening on a bigger level, actually, which unfortunately. So here's one of the things how the U.S. nuclear process works. So we don't do what some of the other nations do. We don't go fully automated like Russia and uh, South Korea. We keep the human element in there. So it, that's again, that's why the military aid is right by his side with the football that has the targeting, the plans, all the, and a lot more in there. That's why it takes the president to be there also. And the two of them communicate to the National Military Command Center, and that's where things start happening in terms of getting turns keyed and silos and launching bombers and nuclear subs uh, targeting. So it's a very fragile process, but in the U.S. we like to use the human element I think that's intelligent. You know, I always thought that if I got an order from him to launch nuclear weapons, then I was going to judge his sanity and his state of mind, and I would act off of that. And uh, that's the only way I could humanly get through that job is knowing that I was part of the COG and I was a military guy and I could understand the possible implications of what might happen if he were to screw things up. It's, so it's, uh, it sounds like you were the only cog that was working in that machine for a little while. <laughs> I would probably, my wife would agree with that. Uh, it was trying, it was like herding cats with some of the younger staff and trying to keep Clinton out of trouble. I mean, I can tell you stories. In fact, most of them are in dereliction of duty. My book about how the many times that they wanted to do things with our military, and I said, no, that's that's not a good idea. Really, that's just going to embarrass the president and. Uh, inflamed tensions around the world and so i was kind of the one of the adults and the only adults in the room <laughs> uh yeah you mentioned i think it was in dereliction of duty that there was a story about uh, bill clinton and osama bin laden yeah so uh one night we had bin laden in our sights i was upstairs in the bedroom my bedroom and i got a call from the national uh security council guys and girls who are down there on watch saying, we need you to come down. We're trying to, we've got Bin Laden. We, we, we need to know, we need the president to um, make a decision whether or not to shoot or not. So I went down to the National Security Council room, situation room, and Sandy Berger, who was the National Security Council advisor at the time, and we were watching our guys uh, surround Bin Laden's camp in Afghanistan. And all we needed was the go-ahead from President Clinton to shoot. And we couldn't get him on the phone for over an hour. So we had these CIA operatives and military special operators on the ground around Bin Laden ready to take his life. And we couldn't find the president who was upstairs somewhere in the residence and wouldn't answer his phone and wouldn't answer people walking up there to talk to him. Finally, he got back to us. And it was too late. The, we had to... The, it was, it was sun. It was sun. A light in Afghanistan, and the CIA guys had to scoot and get evacuated out of there. 
And so that by the time Clinton talked to the Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, you name it, he talked United Nations, he talked to everybody, and we let that opportunity go. That was 1997. And if we had gotten in there, there would have been no 2001. Yeah, that, I was just going to say that, that that is another unbelievable. Again, it just... It seems like it was one thing after another because you don't think about that. Like, oh, where's Bill? He's not answering his phone. It's like, you, you can't, like, how can you imagine that that's going to stop a terrorist attack four years later? Well, it only emboldens it. You know, I think that's what we're seeing right now in the Middle East with Biden and Iran and Hamas, you know, in Israel. If you, if you sit back on your hands, there's one thing that President Reagan taught me, and I, to this day I hold this close to my heart. The only way to peace is strength. And you can't appease these people. You can't. And you're seeing you, Iran is putting it right back in Biden's face. And all we're still doing is tap dancing around the verbiage and not really saying, okay, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. Clinton wouldn't do it. And Biden won't do it. And it just emboldens and encourages our enemies around the world, not just ours, but our Western allies, Israel. The Europeans uh, and most of the U.S. liberals don't get that. So, as an experienced military guy, as you obviously are, do you? I mean, it's got to drive you crazy. Throughout to say the last thirty years is when you see what what should be done, and then you see for whatever reason these plans they just keep they just keep going awry. What's being done isn't being done. Well, it's because our political class has become separated from our military class, and they no longer understand that the guys and girls on the ground don't really get a vote. And uh, I think that they're, both sides really are kind of quick to, Republican and Democrat, are kind of quick to deploy our troops and to show us strength without any kind of real path forward for success. I mean, the U.S. military, Derek, hasn't won a war since World War II. Yeah, yeah. We're we're not we're not doing great here. Our Pentagon is politically corrupt and so woke that our guys and girls that are out there right now, unfortunately, have really poor leadership, and they have the commander chiefs are really poor leader, and that's just not a good recipe for success. What is the recipe for success? Uh, a strong leader. I know that uh, people don't like President Trump. For Some your, people for don't. <laughs> I think President Trump was a great commander-in-chief. And I hope he's a commander-in-chief again. And I hope he comes in and cleans house. Because we need it. I mean, right now, Derek, we're on a path for destruction of our culture, our society, our political system. And I think people are finally starting to wake up. But it's taken them too long. Way too long. Well, again, uh, you talk about all your work in the military and stuff, and like we were saying with your commander-in-chief and all that. These decisions have to be made to what's in the best interest of everybody. Because I think, again, sorry, I keep going back to the Clinton thing. That, uh, I think you've said that uh, he didn't have very much regard for the military or the system or how everything worked. It was just kind of, uh, you know, send them in there and figure out what happened. Well, he had a real disconnect with the military, and I was trying to bridge that a lot with him, trying to explain to him what we were capable of and what we weren't capable of. And he used the military as a prop, and I think that's what Biden is doing too. You know, when we would go to military bases, when I was with, with, with Clinton, they would boo him. Really? Uh, we went to a 
naval carrier off the coast of Norfolk, Virginia at one time, and uh, the people were, the, the Navy, the sailors were forced to be there. They didn't want him there. It was time out of their day, and when he got up on the stage, it was absolute audible booze. Um, you never heard that with Trump. And you're starting to get that with Biden now, where people are just fed up with him. And, and, and military guys, here's the thing about military that I think civilians should understand. When you're in the military, you've kind of signed your life away. Yeah, absolutely. For yeah. a extended period of time. And you can understand leadership at the very beginning of your service, and you can also understand the bullshit. And especially the lowest ranks can see, right, if you're not a, a strong commander and a leader, the younger forces, I don't care what service we're talking about, Air Force, Army, Marines, Navy, Coast Guard, they can see right through that stuff. And if you're not uh, inspirational or taking care of them, they're not going to take care of you. And they don't like leaders like Joe, Joe Biden and Bill Clinton. Well, no, because, you know, it, it's the whole it's the whole unit working together. You know, it's a good leader. It's good people under him. It, it's, uh, you know, soldiers, of the Air Force, Navy, uh, Marines, everyone that, that believes in the, in the chain of command. And I would imagine well, here's you the thing that I think that most uh, Democrats don't get, Derek, is that loyalty and faith goes both ways. Absolutely. They demand it from the lower ranks, but the upper ranks don't return it. And that's the kind of thing that really rankles the forces. And I'm talking, you know, I'm even, you know, my ranks and my peers, uh, we, you know, we had leadership positions and we could see that we were being led by idiots. And, uh, the youngest, the new, the new enlistment guys and girls, they see right through that stuff. And if you're a fraud or a fake, they are not going to support you. No. And you know what? You're not alone. I mean, uh, we were talking a while ago about, uh, Jesse Ventura when he was in Vietnam, because, again, like yourself, very patriotic, very Army guy, you know, set your watch, that sort of thing. And then to hear him afterwards say, you know what, kind of like we were lied to by, in, during the chain of command, it's just, it's, it's strange to look at the whole scope of everything. Again, like you dedicate your life to it. You go, you're flying planes, you're going into 70 or 69 different countries, sorry. And then afterwards, just to figure out, it's like this system is broken. To, to me, like it's heartbreaking in a, in a strange way. It just it sucks your soul. It does, and it's heartbreaking. I'll tell you what was the epitome of lack of leadership that our Pentagon has today and our White House is the Afghanistan withdrawal. Every military member that I have ever known would have done that differently. But we did it for political reasons, and we lost, not, not only did we lose 13 Americans on that day, but I had friends that were serving there that served multiple tours. And they're like, what the hell was I doing here? This is a lie. The whole thing's a lie. Because this we, a waste we of time, which, again, you've dedicated yes. your life to it, and they're telling you it was pointless. <laughs> it's a waste of time and a waste of blood and treasure. You know, I, I lost friends over there. Yeah. And to see how this was handled was just, it was malpractice. And, uh, you know, it, if I had been in charge, things would have been different. I can guarantee you. <laughs> Just quickly before we go, uh, what would you have done different? I always like to play a little Monday uh, morning. Afghanistan or my life? <laughs> uh, just you know what I mean. Like if you've obviously you've seen the chain of command from the inside out. Like, what do you think is is a is a is a logical first step into you know just across the board with with the military well, I think that, specifically. 
I think that in the military, we have to clean house. I mean, we, the Pentagon, I think a lot of Americans and Canadians and people around the world think the military, the Pentagon is some hallowed place of leadership and, and virtue, and it's simply not. It used to be. But uh, we have... Uh, we have elected people who have put the wrong people in leadership. Uh, I can tell Secretary Lloyd Austin, Mark Milley, General Mark Milley. These are all political plants uh, that were raised during the Obama administration, and then Biden put them into power. And those these are not leaders. George Patton would not last a day in today's Pentagon because he would he would speak the truth. And nobody's speaking the truth. I'm trying to, but I'm just a little, vo- little voice out here in the woods. You know, I'm just I'm trying to put my thing out there. But I, I've got a lot of fr- friends that are still active, and they're asking me to keep supporting the you know the mission and stuff. And the leadership and the political process in this country is broken, and our military reflects that. Yeah, that's it's just you you've given like, there's a lot to think about. This has been a fascinating conversation and just scratching the surface. Well have me back anytime, Derek. You got it. So everybody, his name is Lieutenant Colonel Buzz Patterson. Uh follow him on Twitter at Buzz Patterson. Uh head over to Amazon or wherever buy you buy your books. Uh check out Dereliction of Duty, Reckless Disregard, uh Conduct Unbecoming and War Crimes. Remember he said um Reckless Disregard was his best book. Uh, and if you get a chance, go out and see him speak. He's all over the place. But I guess Twitter's the best uh, place to see what you're out and up to, or is there anything else? Yeah, Derek, I'm on Twitter at Buzz Patterson. I'm on uh, Instagram at Real Buzz Patterson. I'm on Facebook, and I'm on Getter. Uh, but, yeah, Twitter's the best place to hit me up. And I just got back from doing two speaking events this this past week up and down California, which is fantastic, and I love talking about what's going on today and talking about our military and making sure that that the 99% understand what the 1% is doing for them in uniform. Yeah, I'm telling you, man, you're an amazing guy. You really opened my eyes. It's a fascinating conversation. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Derek. It's been fun. Uh, my pleasure, man. You have a great day, and thanks again. You too. Take care. Bye.